Mike Johnson, speaker. Mike Johnson averted a government shutdown. But at what price? What price? Once again, he got a continuing resolution passed, but he did it through something called suspension. He had to bypass the powerful rules committee in the House. He took it to the floor for a straight thumbs up or thumbs down vote. Now, you need two thirds of the House for that to pass, which means he had to work with Democrats. It passed. Congressman Bob Good of Virginia is the head of the Freedom Caucus, the far right Freedom Caucus. And I am told that before Mike Johnson brought it down to the House for a a vote, he begged Speaker Johnson to let the bill go through the powerful House Rules Committee so they could tack on the border bill, H.R. 2. H.R. 2, this draconian border bill, which would never pass in the Senate. Supposedly, Chip Roy, also from the Freedom Caucus, and Bob Good are at best disappointed with Speaker Mike Johnson. At worst, they're ready to remove him. So, Mike Johnson's days are numbered. These are his end of days. But I'm not sure how they're numbered. The House is now in recess until the 29th. Not a bad job. They come back, what, a week ago, two weeks ago, and now they get another 10 days off. And Republicans in the House have privately said, we can't get rid of another speaker with the general election nine months away. It would make it look like the GOP can't govern, which, spoiler alert, they can't. Johnson doesn't evince the same vitriol that Kevin McCarthy did. He hasn't been around long enough to make the kind of enemies that Kevin McCarthy had. He's a newbie. He is part of the Freedom Caucus, which gives speakers headaches, which destroyed Boehner and Paul Ryan. But Mike Johnson is one of theirs. He is a product of the Freedom Caucus. John Boehner, Paul Ryan, who became speakers and were brought down by the Freedom Caucus, they were not part of the Freedom Caucus Mike Johnson is from day one. So would the Freedom Caucus turn on him just because he violated one of their core tenets and worked with the Democrats, which is what Johnson did yesterday to avert a government shutdown? He committed the the venial sin of reaching across the aisle. Now, the Freedom Caucus loves to threaten shutting down the government. They love to kick and scream. But in the end, some of them know shutting down the government is bad politics. What Johnson did on Thursday is exactly what got Kevin McCarthy removed, partly what got Kevin McCarthy removed. He introduced it through suspension. He took it to the floor. It didn't go through the rules committee. He suspended order, regular order, straight thumbs up or thumbs down. This drives people like Matt Gates crazy. So here's what I think 
and I know nothing, but here's what I think happened yesterday. As I said, when you introduce a bill through suspension, it requires two-thirds of the majority. So you automatically have to bring in the Democrats. And by doing so, if you're Speaker Johnson, you're actually providing political cover to your friends over at the Freedom Caucus. You're letting them vote against the continuing resolution, and they get to maintain their hard, right, flame-throwing bona fides. But the government gets to stay open because you got the Democrats doing the heavy lifting for you. In wrestling, in pro wrestling, I believe they call it kayfabe. It's all scripted. It's kayfabe. Mike Johnson says to the Freedom Caucus quietly, look, I'm going to play the heel. I'll betray you. You get to throw chairs at me, kick and scream, and you don't have to change your stripes or compromise at all. I'll form an alliance with the enemy. I'll look like the elder statesman, and you get to look like the screaming banshees you're constituents so desperately want. So I don't think he's going to be forced to vacate the chair. I think this is kayfabe. I think it's it's scripted. I do, however, think his days are numbered because Mike Johnson is all in on Donald Trump. He always has been. He's actually told his caucus in the past week that he's thinking of bringing Trump in to the House, into the Republican caucus to meet to help sculpt some kind of border bill. He is Donald Trump's most servile lackey. And the reason I say Mike Johnson's days are numbered is because when anybody gets this close to Donald Trump, they pay a tremendous price. We know everything Trump touches turns to dung. Now, I'm not sure how Mike Johnson gets destroyed, but he's been touched by Trump. And sometime between now and Election Day, Donald Trump will screw him and Mike Johnson will be done. We have a live poll in our virtual studio audience in the chat room here on YouTube. And the question I have for my listeners, if you're watching live right now, is do you think Mike Johnson will still be speaker by November? Yes or no? Do you think Mike Johnson will be speaker by November, knowing that he is all in on Donald Trump? Has anybody survived being this close politically or emotionally to Donald Trump? It looks like Donald Trump will have the nomination sealed. I'll have more on Mike Johnson in a few minutes. It looks like Trump will have the nomination sealed by Tuesday, and I'll have more on that later. It means, and this is why I think it's a problem for Mike Johnson, that Donald Trump will have sealed the nomination after New Hampshire. No more electioneering until after the conventions, really. And that gives Trump and the Republicans... Plenty of time to feed on one another. I don't know what's going to happen 
but Mike Johnson is in Trump's thrall. And you pay a price, a huge, huge price for that, legally and personally. Marjorie Taylor Greene warned if Johnson made any deal with the Democrats to keep the government open without addressing the border, she would file a motion to vacate the chair. She probably will, but she also takes her orders from Trump. This is the slimmest majority in American history. This is the smallest majority. He's got two votes. He can only afford, uh, he's got a two-vote majority. It's the smallest, slimmest majority any Republican speaker has ever had in American history. Chip Roy, the Texas firebrand, has been out on the campaign trail working for DeSantis. He's not a Trump guy. If you remember, Chip Roy and Ken Buck were the only members of the Freedom Caucus to certify the election for Joe Biden after January 6. Chip Roy warned, if Johnson keeps the government open, passes a continuing resolution without addressing the border, Chip Roy says he will support, and say he would introduce, but he would support a motion for Mike Johnson to vacate the chair. And remember, Chip Roy doesn't take his orders from Trump. See, Trump... A lot of Republicans are the Freedom Caucus, which is all in on Donald Trump. They uh, say they will support a motion to vacate the chair, but they're not willing to do what Matt Gates did, and that is introduce the motion to vacate the chair. Trump, in many ways, is calling the shots, especially with the Freedom Caucus. And if there's going to be a motion to vacate the chair, it's going to come from the Freedom Caucus. So he is in desperate need of Donald Trump. His fealty to Donald Trump is the difference between remaining speaker and not remaining speaker. As recently as yesterday, Arizona Republican Eli Crane said he would support a motion for Johnson to vacate the chair if he continues with business as usual. Nobody is threatening to do what Matt Gates did, and that is introduce the motion to vacate the chair. And he was doing that on orders from Trump. Trump had had it with Kevin McCarthy because Kevin McCarthy didn't expunge the two impeachments, which you can't do. You can't expunge an impeachment but Trump eventually turned on Kevin McCarthy and said, "You, I'm not supporting you. You didn't clear my name. You had nine months to clear my name. You're out. So Trump has a lot of power inside that Republican caucus. Steve Bannon said yesterday he's completely done with Johnson. And this is where I think Johnson's going to get into trouble uh, with Trump. He's a little too Christy for Trump. Steve Bannon said, I'm done with Mike Johnson because Mike Johnson confessed to a reporter on Wednesday that Biden is the president and that it's God's will. That's going to be a problem for Donald Trump. That is, if anything's going to do Mike Johnson in, it's the Christy stuff. It's, is saying 
Biden is president because it's God's will. You can't say that around Trump. If you remember, Trump trashed Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, after October 7th. Blamed him for letting his guard down, said he was a bad prime minister. And why? Why did Donald Trump turn on Benjamin Netanyahu? Because Benjamin Netanyahu was the first to call Joe Biden to congratulate him for winning the 2020 presidential election. That was the ultimate betrayal. The first world leader to call Joe Biden was Benjamin Netanyahu. And that was it. Didn't matter that he agreed with everything Benjamin Netanyahu stands for. You acknowledge that Joe Biden is president. You're dead to me. Mike Johnson has made it clear he needs Donald Trump. Once you do that, once you do that, it's only a matter of time before he lights you on fire. On Thursday, Johnson supported exactly what he promised he wouldn't support when he ran for speaker, another continuing resolution. He made a deal with the Democrats, and Trump probably didn't want that. He wants chaos, He wants the economy to crash. He said that. He said, I hope the economy crashes now on Biden's watch. He wants the government to shut down so he can swoop in as the savior come November. But Johnson knows a government shutdown is bad for Republicans. Not bad for Trump, just bad for Republicans. So somewhere between now and March... When they have to get a budget passed again, Trump is going to screw Mike Johnson. And Mike Johnson, I believe, will walk away into the sunset. I don't think he vacates the chair. I don't think there'll be a vote. I think Trump is going to destroy him the same way he was willing to let the angry mob hang Mike Pence. What do you think? We're conducting a poll In the chat room, do you think Mike Johnson will be speaker in November? I don't. I don't. This is the mop-up for January 19th, 2024. Thank you so much for finding me. This is an audio podcast. So please download this show wherever you get your audio from on your next drive or your next walk or when you're taking care of a loved one or cleaning the kitchen. Listen to this as an audio podcast. And of course, leave a comment. I read all your comments. I have some corrections. I don't know if I'm going to have time to get to to them uh, today, but there are some (laughs) mistakes I made on uh, the last show we did. And of course, please do me a favor, like and share this episode so I remain in your feed. Bloomberg reports this morning, NASA scientists say global catastrophe is far worse than they had predicted. While millions of Americans brace for yet another Arctic blast and below freezing temperatures, our planet continues to heat up, with Greenland now reported to have lost 20% more of its ice sheet than previously believed. NASA, this is horrible. NASA scientists say one trillion more tons of ice 
have melted into the ocean than they had calculated. One trillion more tons of ice, which is why more and more cities here in America should expect more and more coastal flooding. But let's fight about this imaginary migrant crisis at the border, a crisis that doesn't exist. You want to see migration, wait till this planet is irredeemably heated up. Then we'll all be migrants. In 2022, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency lacked complete authority to regulate emissions from power plants. It called into question a 1984 Supreme Court ruling that granted federal agencies extreme latitude when it comes to enforcing laws passed by Congress. In that ruling, back in 1984, the Supreme Court gave regulators more power to interpret the original intent of a piece of legislation and said that from now on, when regulatory enforcement is challenged, the courts would defer to the agencies since it is their scientists and experts who know better than the courts. The courts in 1984 said we will defer defer to the administrative state, to the regulators. It's called the Chevron deference. The Chevron deference. A little different from the Voss deference. Look up <laughs> the Voss deference. Uh, this is called the Chevron deference. The courts defer to the federal agencies, and that 1984 ruling flows from a lawsuit bought by evil Chevron, which was challenging enforcement of the Clean Air Act. So the court back then, in their ruling, warned that if they didn't defer to the expertise of the federal agencies, the administrative state, the courts didn't allow the administrative state to enforce laws passed by Congress when it comes to the environment and whatever. Uh, if, it, if it was left to the courts, then the courts would be log-jammed with every corporation suing to overturn enforcement of a regulation. Because of the Chevron deference, the administrative state if you will, has been able to regulate all sorts of industries by not just applying laws, laws that were passed by Congress, but interpreting them as well. You know, the, the Clean Water Act was passed, what, in 71? You got the Clean Air Act passed in the 60s. And the, the Chevron deference allows the EPA and the Interior Department to interpret the original intent of these laws and enforce them. The Chevron deference has been in effect, like I said, for 40 years. But now we have a right wing in this country that wants to dismantle the regulatory state, the administrative state. And when they say administrative state or the regulatory state, they're talking about the millions of federal employees who enforce regulatory law. You've heard of Project 2025. It was proposed by the Heritage Foundation. And if 
God forbid Donald Trump or Nikki Haley is elected, they would hit the ground running using Project 2025 to eliminate nearly half the federal workforce by the time Trump or whoever is the Republican president, God forbid, in 2029. In four years, they plan to eliminate nearly half the federal workforce, get rid of the regulators. And now, this week, a case went before the Supreme Court challenging the Chevron deference, the doctrine of the Chevron deference. The court is hearing a case challenging the Department of Commerce's authority to regulate fishing. If the court rules against the Department of Commerce, it will strike a major blow to the Chevron deference, the doctrine, the Chevron deference doctrine. It would be a major blow to the administrative state, opening up a Pandora's box of legal challenges to every labor, environmental, and equal opportunity fine or punishment imposed by government regulators. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments with our three liberal justices warning of a flood of litigation should the Chevron deference be overturned. The Financial Times reports that conservatives Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch seem to believe that the Chevron deference is now an outdated notion and that it's unfair to big business since regulators enforce the laws differently whenever there's a new president. Yes, you know, prosecutorial discretion. Who do you want to enforce the laws? Well, if you're Steve Bannon and the Heritage Foundation, the courts. The courts, the courts, the courts. Every oil spill, every train wreck, every woman of color fired because she's a woman of color, Anytime she goes to the Office of Economic Equal Opportunity, the Department of Labor, it would have to go through the courts. This would be a nightmare, a nightmare. It would allow corporations to run roughshod over the environment and the LGBTQ community, women, African-Americans, Native Americans, Well, Donald Tusk, Donald Tusk is the new president of Poland. But unlike Donald Trump, Donald Tusk is anti-authoritarian. He's trying to clean out remnants from his previous government, which was right-wing authoritarian. And as is always the case with those types of people, corrupt. On Wednesday, Poland's former Foreign Minister Peter Warzyk was arrested by Poland's Anti-Corruption Bureau and charged with trying to sell visas. Tusk just took office as Prime Minister. He served previously between 2007 and 2014. There's been a, uh, a spate of authoritarian regimes throughout Eastern Europe. We're seeing with Viktor Orban in Hungary, Donald Tusk is replacing a, a previous right-wing authoritarian government, all funded by Vladimir Putin. So Donald Tusk, Prime Minister of Poland, is trying to undo the damage done to the Polish democracy. 
done by Vladimir Putin and the previous prime minister who ran the Law and Justice Party. And the Law and Justice Party still controls the state-owned media, the courts, and the central bank. Poland's current president is opposed to Donald Tusk's reform, and he's aligned with the Law and Justice Party. He also has veto power uh, over the prime minister and whatever legislation he's able to pass. The president's term expires in August of 2025. So it's good to pay attention to what's going on in Hungary. It's good to pay attention to what's going on in Poland because this is the template for our future. If CPAC, the Heritage Foundation, if they get their hands on our uh, government, we'll start looking a lot like Hungary and uh, Poland, if we're lucky, if we're lucky. The Justice Department's uh, finally released its long-anticipated report on why so many children died in May of 2022 when a gunman opened fire inside Uvalde, Texas's Robb Elementary School. Oh, I can tell you, uh, because Congress refused to reauthorize the assault weapons ban. You didn't need to do a a study. And uh, that's why it happened. Texas is beholden to arms manufacturers who only care about profits. That's why it happened. That's the only reason it happened. Attorney General Merrick Garland held a press conference on Thursday and outlined his key findings in this new 600-page report. Despite hundreds of local, federal, and state police officers showing up on the scene According to Merrick Garland, nobody was in charge. The police refuse to storm the shooter because they thought it was a hostage situation, even though they were getting phone calls and they could hear the shots. The truth is Congress never reauthorized the assault weapons ban, and you had about 400 cops who didn't want to die. They were terrified. Merrick Garland said most of the officers arriving on the scene lacked the proper training to deal with an active shooter. Even worse, many of the victims were left to die needlessly instead of being put on ambulances and then rushed to a nearby hospital. You know, you can issue reports about training. It's the guns and it's the guns. It's not about police training. It's not about getting prepared. It's about it being too easy to buy an assault weapon. You had 400 good guys with a gun, and for 77 minutes after they all arrived on the scene, 400 good guys did nothing for 77 minutes. 400 good guys with a gun waited 77 minutes to stop one bad guy with a gun. 19 children and two adults ended up dead. Whose fault is it? The people who sell these weapons. And why aren't the police? You had 400 police officers terrified of being gunned down 
and we still don't hear them calling for an assault weapons ban. The National Rifle Association is a nonprofit charitable corporation chartered back in 1871 here in New York. The NRA, along with Wayne LaPierre, who ran it up until two weeks ago, is now being sued for fraud by New York State Attorney General Letitia James. Wayne LaPierre, along with two other executives, are charged with stealing $45 million from donors to the NRA by making deals with an ad agency and a travel agent and then getting what amounts to illegal kickbacks by charging vacations, clothing, and travel on the credit cards of the ad agency and the travel agent. The trial began on Monday. During testimony on Thursday, Christopher Cox who served as the NRA's top lobbyist in Washington, said he was disgusted by Wayne LaPierre. He was disgusted to learn that the head of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, made the NRA pick up the tab for close to a quarter of a million dollars in designer suits. Yeah, real outdoors man. Wayne LaPierre. The New York State Attorney General reportedly learned of financial irregularities at the NRA when Colonel Oliver North, remember him back in the 80s, he illegally sold weapons to Iran and then used the proceeds to illegally fund the Contras in Nicaragua. Well, he briefly became president of the NRA and then engaged in a power struggle with Wayne LaPierre the NRA's chief executive. Oliver North, we thought, was the good guy in all this, but how could Oliver North ever be the good guy in anything? We have now learned on Tuesday that Oliver North agreed to serve as president of the NRA. It's a job that pays nothing. It's an honorary title. But Oliver North, like Wayne LaPierre, quickly turned it into a million-dollar-a-year salary when he became host for NRA Television, a gun rights network set up by the NRA, we are learning, to launder money, to get money from the donors who give to the NRA and funnel it to NRA TV and into the pockets of criminals, alleged criminals like Wayne LaPierre and Oliver North. This is according to testimony and according to the New York State Attorney General. One vendor, the ad agency, one, one of the NRA's vendors, the ad agency Ackerman McQueen, received nearly $135 million in contracts from the National Rifle Association. And a good chunk of that money, according to the Attorney General, ended up in Wayne LaPierre's pocket. It's a kickback. I'm the head of the NRA. I can disperse funds. I'm going to give you $135 million. You give me a credit card, and I start charging things to your company. 
According to testimony, on Tuesday, Wayne LaPierre operated in secrecy, punishing any board member or accountant who questioned his doctored invoices or any of his spending. One accountant said he began asking questions and then immediately found himself unable to log into the NRA's computer system. He got locked out, was asking too many questions. During her opening remarks on Tuesday, Assistant New York State Attorney General Monica Connell gave an example of how Wayne LaPierre and his wife used the NRA as their personal piggy bank when they charged the National Rifle Association $59,000 so they could fly their niece on a private jet from Nebraska to Texas. Your hard-earned NRA money at work. And then they charged $79,000. They made the NRA pay $79,000 to fly Wayne LaPierre's niece on a private jet from Nebraska to Orlando, Florida. According to recent filings, the National Rifle Association spent $3.2 million last year on gun education and training, which was the original intent of the National Rifle Association to train sports people on how to use a gun. Last year, they spent $3.2 million on gun education and training and $44 million on administrative costs. The trial is expected to last five more weeks, and Wayne LaPierre, who should rot in hell, is going to testify next week. 50,000 Americans dead every year from gunshots. This man's fault. This man's fault. We can't get an assault weapons ban. This man's fault. Bad news for Donald Trump. Atlanta, Georgia's homicide rate dropped 21% in 2023. Now, Trump is on trial there on charges of interfering with the state's 2020 presidential election results. Ever since Donald Trump was indicted, along with 18 other co-conspirators, Trump has attacked the Fulton County District Attorney, Phony Willis, saying she should be going after real criminals. And then he proceeds to make up phony stats about homicides going up under her watch as Fulton County District Attorney. Meanwhile, the Trump mud machine is doing everything in its power to discredit Phony Willis. Trump and his surrogates are accusing Willis of hiring her friend, Nathan Wade, I believe his first name is Nathan Wade, Uh, to serve as the special prosecutor in the case. Special Prosecutor Wade. Trump says Wade is totally inexperienced, and the only reason he got the job is because he's dating Fawny Willis. Well, if he's inexperienced and so bad at his job, wouldn't you take your chances, Donald, having him as the lead prosecutor? Wade is currently going through a divorce, and in sealed court documents, Wade's wife seems to have referred to an improper relationship between her soon-to-be ex-husband and the Fulton County District Attorney. 
Willis, funny Willis, received a subpoena ordering her to appear on January 23rd for a deposition in Wade's divorce proceedings. She's asking the subpoena to be thrown out and is now accusing her special prosecutor, soon to be ex wife, of attempting to interfere with the prosecution of Donald Trump. They stop at nothing. This is, this is New York City real estate. This is how it's done. It's writ large. That's Trump. This is how you build in New York City. You just never give up. You, you hire detectives and you dig and you fling mud and you lie. This is how you build in Manhattan. The judge in Trump's RICO trial, Fulton Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee, will hold an evidentiary hearing in mid-February to address a motion by one of the defendants, one of the 19 co-conspirators. It's a motion that Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade be removed because of his improper relationship with Fawny Willis. This is all bull. Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting that Fawny Willis and another female black prosecutor on her team have accused Trump's lawyers of being disrespectful and condescending in their racist exchanges with them. Fawny Willis wrote an email to Trump's attorney, Stephen H. Sato, which read, quote, In the legal community and the world at large, some people will never be able to respect African Americans and or women as their equal and counterpart. She wrote in a note addressed to Trump's lawyer, Mr. Sato, uh, but this was sent to all the defense lawyers and her team. Uh, most of uh, Sato's, law- all of Sato's lawyers are white. Uh, so uh, Fawny Willis went on to say, uh, being disrespectful, being disrespected is a burden you do not experience. Further, some are so used to doing it, they are not even aware they are doing it, while others are intentional in their continued disrespect. Should I read that again? We'll move on. Alina Haba, Trump's attorney in the E. Jean Carroll defamation suit that began this week, told the presiding judge in the case, Lewis Kaplan, she told him, quote, I don't like to be spoken to that way, and we are going to be here for several days. I am asking your honor to please refrain from speaking to me in that matter. In that manner. Well, how was he speaking to her? He corrected her. Turns out she's doesn't look like she knows what she's doing. Uh, Habba was rebuked 14 times in one day by the judge, who, among other criticisms, said Habba needs to relearn how evidence is entered into a trial, and she was reminded to stand when addressing him. Habba took exception when, after asking for the third time that the trial be postponed, the judge angrily pounded his gavel and said, Denied, now sit down. And she didn't like the way he said, Denied, now sit down. 
I don't like being talked to in that way. Donald Trump was there for the first day of testimony. At one point, the judge threatened to throw him out of the courtroom if Trump wouldn't remain silent. Trump taunted the judge. He said, throw me out. He shouted, throw me out. I would love it. I would love it. The judge accused Trump of not being able to control himself, and Trump shouted back at the judge, you can't either. You can't control yourself either. Who gets away with this? Donald Trump. Only Donald Trump gets to behave this way. E. Jean Carroll took the stand. It was the first time she'd been in a room with Trump since 1996 when, according to last year's jury, he raped her inside a changing room at Bergdorf Goodman. He raped her inside a changing room at Bergdorf Goodman. Carol has already won a $5 million judgment from that jury, ordering Trump to pay her damages for the rape as well as damages for defaming her after she went public with the allegations in 2019 when she announced she would take advantage of New York's Adult Survivors Act, which provides a one-year lift on the statute of limitations for victims of sexual assault so they could bring charges in a civil lawsuit, and that lift on the statute of limitations expired at the end of 2023. In the second trial, Judge Kaplan has ruled that Trump is guilty of defaming E. Jean Carroll once again. This is a second trial for defamation, and the purpose of this trial is strictly for determining how much more he has to pay Carroll for damages. During her testimony on Wednesday, E. Jean Carroll told the jury, quote, I'm here because Donald Trump assaulted me. And when I wrote about it, he said it never happened. He lied and he shattered my reputation. Previously, I was known simply as a journalist and I wrote a column. But now I'm known as the liar, the fraud, and the whack job. On Thursday, Carol's attorney presented a witness who estimated that Trump's comments about her amount to $12.1 million in damages. Northwestern University Professor Ashley Humphreys told the jury she added up the number of tweets and comments that Donald Trump as president made about E. Jean Carroll, and then the professor calculated the number of Americans who saw and heard the tweets and comments. The professor estimates the damage done to E. Jean Carroll rose to the level of severe, and that's how she arrived at the $12.1 million figure. Donald Trump is scheduled to testify in this trial on Monday, one day before the New Hampshire primaries, where the real clear polling averages show him with 46 0.3% of the vote compared to Nikki Haley with 33.5%.
50% of the vote. There's no question that Nikki Haley is rising in New Hampshire. Let's take a look at the delegate tracker. Now, you need 1,215 delegates to win the Republican nomination. Iowa had 40 delegates at stake. Trump ended up with 20. Ron DeSantis, the second-place finisher, ended up with nine. Nikki Haley got eight, and Vivek Ramaswamy, who dropped out after coming in fourth, got three delegates. We're now seeing a clearer picture of who voted on Monday. Not a lot. Only 111,000 Iowa Republicans braved the Arctic chill. That's only 15% of all registered Republicans in that state. Dave Weigel over at Semaphore says this was the lowest turnout for a Republican caucus in 24 years. Turnout was down 40% from 2016 when Trump lost to Ted Cruz. And of course, he said it was fraud. Remember that? He immediately accused Ted Cruz of fraud. This is where it stands going into next week's New Hampshire primary. Vivek Ramaswamy is gone. Ron DeSantis lost to Trump in Iowa by 30 percentage points. Ron DeSantis, who bet it all on Iowa, lost to Donald Trump by 30 percentage points. It was, however, enough to play second. And that means it's still too early to drop out. But DeSantis is polling in the single digits in New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley is within striking distance, according to the real clear polling averages. So he's basically gone. So it's down to Trump and Nikki Haley. Haley, over the weekend, uh, said that America was never a racist country. And she can't seem to get it straight over what the Civil War was about. Yeah, no matter how hard Nikki tries, she's always going to be a woman of color trying to get Republicans to like her. And it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. You're in the wrong party. So this is basically what it's down to, Trump versus Nikki Haley. In the not-too-distant future, let me go full screen here. In the not-too-distant future, uh, like next Tuesday, people like me are going to be saying, I can't believe I thought Nikki Haley had a chance. She doesn't have a chance. Because we keep thinking this Republican Party can be redeemed. It's a bunch of crypto fascists, including her. She's just as bad as Donald Trump. In many ways, in many ways, she's worse. She says sex is binary. She supports impeaching Biden. She proudly calls herself a union buster. Of all the Republican candidates, Nikki Haley is the most vocal when it comes to opposing unions. According to the New York Times, Haley said that in a perfect world, unions wouldn't exist. She attacked the UAW for last year's strike and said it will result in higher prices for automobiles. 
As governor of South Carolina in 2012, she said, quote, I will continue to be a union buster because every time you see me on national TV busting the unions, another CEO calls to bring jobs that pay nothing to South Carolina and keep people in a permanent state of poverty, the working poor. The Times says in 2014, as governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley bragged, quote, we discourage any companies that have unions from wanting to come to South Carolina because we don't want to taint the water, unquote. Unions taint the water. And she opposes raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. When it comes to Medicare, she says she supports privatization through Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage, this is how, this is a Trojan horse, Medicare Advantage, to privatize Medicare and kill grandma and grandpa. When you privatize Medicare, when you turn Medicare over to United Healthcare, you are killing your grandparents. The Financial Times reports that Ken Langone, the billionaire founder of Home Depot, said he won't be donating any more money to Nikki Haley until he sees how she does in New Hampshire. Now, before the Christmas break, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, uh, brought her around Wall Street, and she met with bankers and corporate heads, and she became the darling of the moneyed class who saw her as the way more attractive alternative to Trump. I mean, this is somebody who, who boasts she's a union buster. How could Wall Street not love her? But Ken Langone, the founder of Home Depot, said it's now starting to look like Trump's nomination is a foregone conclusion, and he's waiting to see what happens. An argument could be made that of Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Chris Christie, Trump would be the least of our worries. He's crass, he's disgusting, but if you had to choose from those four, I don't know. I don't know. DeSantis was really hoping for one of two outcomes in Iowa on Monday. The first outcome was he was hoping that he would surprise everyone and win. The other outcome would be he comes in third so he could finally drop out. But he came in second. He came in second, but he lost to Trump by 30 points. And now he has to stay in, especially since he beat Nikki Haley and she's still in. The New York Times reports that DeSantis' super PAC, No Surrender, is surrendering. After DeSantis's dismal showing in Iowa, No Surrender began laying off staff, especially in Nevada, which is the next showdown after New Hampshire. The Times reports that Ron DeSantis has already written off New Hampshire 
and is hoping to deal a crushing blow to Haley by beating her in South Carolina, where she was the union-busting governor. South Carolina is right after Nevada, and the latest polls show Donald Trump defeating Haley in her home state with more than double the number of votes. And Ron DeSantis is in a distant third. Now, you know, I enjoy this stuff. Uh, Nothing would please me more to see a competitive race, but it's not happening. Nothing would please me more. You, you, You hear about Trump's behavior in the E. Jean Carroll case, taunting the judge. Nothing would please me more to see him no longer being the the nominee for the Republican Party and having to deal with our criminal justice system as a a billionaire, which would probably have the same outcome when you think about it. But uh, anyway, I would like to see Donald Trump not get the nomination because I want him to suffer. I want him to suffer. But it's not happening. This nominating process should be over by Tuesday night. But Nikki Haley is still being trumpeted as the alternative for never Trumpers. Going into next week's New Hampshire primary, by the way, I'm wrong all the time. So we may have a horse race. Not sure we want one, but we may have one because I'm usually wrong. Going into next week's New Hampshire primary, the real clear averages show Trump with 46.3% of the vote, Haley with 33.5%, Chris Christie has 12%, but he dropped out, and uh, you have to assume all those votes are going to Haley, right? And uh, And then you have DeSantis and Ramaswamy each with 6%, or well, Ramaswamy's out. Uh, those, the 12% that's going to vote for DeSantis or Ramaswamy, I would assume if this race tightens between now and Tuesday, those voters will turn out for Trump. That's what I assume. DeSantis doesn't stand a chance in New Hampshire. And this will be do or die for Nikki Haley, where she's, as I said, polling behind Trump in her home state. Trump is hoping he most probably will deal the knockout blow on Tuesday. He's already deploying racist dog whistles by calling Nikki Haley by her birth name, Nimrata, in an attempt to remind voters that she converted to Christianity and is a woman of color. He's already floated that she isn't entitled to be president because she wasn't born in America because her parents were immigrants when she was born in 1972 here in the United States, but she has birthright citizenship. New Hampshire will be the last stand for the never Trumpers. If Trump wins New Hampshire, the nominating season is over. No candidate has ever won both Iowa and New Hampshire and then gone on to lose the nomination. If Trump wins New Hampshire, we're talking about something else. Trump 
will probably seal it by uh, Tuesday. Haley has no path towards the nomination if she doesn't win New Hampshire or if she wins New Hampshire. We start getting into winner-take-all primaries and Trump is running as an incumbent. So, and that means with Trump sealing it on Tuesday, this will be the longest general election in American history. By Tuesday night, we will know that this is between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and that will make it the longest general election ever. Eight, was it eight or nine months before Americans get to decide? New York Magazine reports that prior to this, the longest general election was 20 years ago when Democrat John Kerry got all the delegates he needed by March. In 2016, Trump didn't have the nomination until late May, and Hillary was still battling with Bernie back then until June. I think an eight-month, nine-month general election works to Joe Biden's favor sevenfold. It puts Trump front and center for the American people to, re- to be reminded of who he is and what his four years as president was like. Nobody was challenging Donald Trump in the primaries. So it was a waste of our time as Democrats. Now, Trump's trials, luckily since he's going to seal it on Tuesday, his trials will get all the coverage since there's no Republican horse race for the media to cover. The primary wins he racks up will just be afterthoughts, and Trump will be free to do what he's been doing for the past four years, spewing with abandon. He is completely out of control. We saw it in the courtroom two days ago. We saw it in the courtroom with Judge Angeron and the civil fraud trial. We see it on Truth Social. Now, look, there are in this country more Democrats than there are Republicans. And when you add independence into the mix, most voters don't like what they see. They don't like what they see. Ted Cruz finally endorsed Donald Trump for president after uh, Trump's landslide Monday night. Axios reports that a lot of Republicans who didn't endorse Trump or didn't endorse him early enough are frantically trying to get in his good graces. These are just bullies or cowards. Axios reports that the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, Virginia Congressman Bob Good, is about to pay a huge price for holding out on Donald Trump. Trump campaign manager Chris LaCivita is quoted as saying, quote, Bob Good won't be electable by the time we're done with him. Does this intimidation work? Yeah, it works with the cowards who run for office in the Republican Party. But will it work with voters? Can you intimidate these people to actually vote for Donald Trump? Can you intimidate 
millions and millions of Americans to vote for you? Cruz took to Twitter and said, now is the time. He said, now is the time for us to unite and save our country from the Democrats' destructive agenda. Cruz, if you remember, was booed in Cleveland when he spoke before the 2016 Republican convention and refused to endorse Donald Trump. Remember that? Cruz had stayed in the race longer than the other challengers. Along the way, Trump not only accused Cruz of stealing his win in the Iowa caucuses, but also said Cruz's father helped kill President Kennedy And then Trump ran ads calling Cruz's wife Heidi ugly and corrupt. Cruz is running to be reelected for his third term this year. The leading Democrat is Congressman Colin Allred, who announced yesterday his fundraising haul for the final quarter of 2023 was $4.8 million, and his campaign war chest right now tops $10 million. Cruz raised only $3.1 million, but there are three super PACs in Ted Cruz's name, and they will outspend Colin Allred when it's time for the general. So before being a congressman, Allred was a former civil rights attorney, and before that he played in the NFL. He's also black, and I think he would be the strongest He's better than Beto O'Rourke. I mean, I don't want to trash Beto O'Rourke, but this guy is much better than Beto O'Rourke. If you're thinking of donating, check out Colin Allred. Uh, you know, Beto came very close. What was it, 2018? What was it? It was less than a million? But I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was surprisingly close. And... There is talk that Texas Republicans uh, may be vulnerable, may be vulnerable. This is the mop-up for January 19th. Where am I? There we go. It's 2024? Yeah. Uh, This is the mop-up for January 19th, 2024. We'll be re-inaugurating... Uh, Joe Biden, a year from tomorrow, right? Uh, Thank you for finding me. This is an audio podcast. I always like to remind everybody that this is an audio podcast. So download this on iTunes or Spotify or Stitch, wherever you you get audio podcasts, take me with you. And of course, leave a comment. That's, uh, I read all your comments and uh, I'm not going to have time for, no, I'm not going to have time for my corrections. And the best way to help me and the best way to, uh, for me to remain in your feed is to like and share this episode. Please like and share. Well, as I said at the top of the show, a partial government, how are we doing? Okay, we're running late. A partial government shutdown was averted late Thursday night when Speaker Mike Johnson put on his big boy pants and asked the Democrats for help. If you recall, the 2024 federal budget was supposed to have been passed and implemented by October 1st of 2023. That's when the fiscal year 
begins on October 1st. Since then, we've had two continuing resolutions. They were necessary to keep our government running because they cannot pass a budget. And as of Thursday, there is now a third continuing resolution to keep things going through March. Uh, Not through March, to the beginning of March. The House passed that third continuing resolution by a vote of 314 to 108 with just a two-vote majority in the House. As I've said, Speaker Mike Johnson has little room for dissent and he needed to turn to Democrats for help, which only intensified calls from the far right to remove him. Late Thursday night, the House Freedom Caucus urged members uh, to vote against the bill, saying the government should be shut down entirely unless something is done about this fictitious crisis at the border. 106 Republicans in the House voted against the bill. 107 Republicans voted for it. Johnson now has 106 Republicans in his caucus pissed off at him. Like I said, Johnson passed the continuing resolution the way he got it passed before and the way former Speaker McCarthy got it passed at the end of September by suspending the rules and asking Congress for a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And as I've told you, parliamentary procedure mandates that in order to pass a bill under suspension, it requires a two-thirds majority in the House, which means you need the Democrats. And as I said, by bringing in the Democrats, Johnson may have provided political cover to those 106 House Republicans to vote their so-called conscience. What we have now is a two-step laddered continuing resolution that partly expires on March 1st, and then entirely on March 8th. So they're on vacation for 10 days. They passed the continuing resolution, and Mike Johnson sent them home. We won't hear from them for 10 days. Meanwhile, the Senate and the White House is working feverishly with the, with the House Uh, trying to craft a supplemental that would provide nearly $100 billion to Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and enforcement agencies along the southern border. There are now reports that Donald Trump is urging Mike Johnson to kill this deal. Johnson said he speaks to the president every day and two days ago said he's beginning to agree with Donald Trump. Why? Because a border deal would give Donald Trump and the Republicans nothing to run on in November. They don't want to solve this problem. It's their political cudgel. Instead, the Republican-controlled House amped up its inquiry into the impeachment of Homeland Security Chief Alexandro Mayorkas. Hearings were held on Thursday to draw attention to this phony crisis at the border, And that's what Republicans want. They'd rather blame Alejandro Mayorkas than actually do something to help the migrants at the border. Well, they don't want to help them. They want to punish them. They they don't want to solve this. 
They want to blame Biden. They want to blame Mayorkas. They never want to fix the border because they saw what happened when Roe v. Wade got passed. They're the proverbial dog that caught the car. And now they now what do we do? We have to come up with another issue. The border works perfectly for them. It's fictitious, so you can say anything you want about these people. <clears throat> In Oklahoma, some Republican turd just introduced uh, a bill categorizing anybody with Hispanic descent as a terrorist. Hakeem Jeffries is the Democratic minority leader in the House. He is one of the darlings of APEC, the big Israel lobby. He gets a lot of money from APEC. And they, APEC, is secretly investing tens of millions of dollars this year in defeating all the members of the squad who have either called for a ceasefire in Gaza or have said they would vote against an additional $14 billion in weapons for Israel. One of APAC's targets is Pennsylvania freshwoman Summer Lee, who fended off an APAC attack in her run for office back in 2022. Hakeem Jeffries and the entire Democratic leadership announced that they are supporting Summer Lee's re-election no matter what APAC tries to do. You might want to write a letter to APEC and say, stop interfering in our elections. Might be a good idea. This is what APEC is doing. They're setting up phony super PACs and uh, going after members of the squad. So you might want to write a letter to APEC uh, telling them to stay out of our elections. Edward Luce writing in the Financial Times this week, says that Joe Biden has a political problem thanks to Israel's response to the October 7th massacre. Michigan and Arizona are two states that Biden won, two states that Hillary lost. It was his combination. That's part of his combination. The, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and uh, Arizona. Well, Michigan and Arizona have large Arab American populations. And because of Joe Biden's unquestioned support for Benjamin Netanyahu, he is losing their support and never coming back to him. As Luce over at the Financial Times points out, the Arab American community always feared Trump. They always feared a Trump second term because of his Arab ban and his immutable support for Israel. But now Arab Americans are thinking, how could he be any worse for us than what's going on right now? Joe Biden is going to have a hard time explaining why he has given 100 bunker-busting bombs to Israel, bombs that weigh 2,000 tons each and are anything but the precision guidance missiles Israel claims to be firing in order to minimize civilian casualties in Gaza. Luce, over at the Financial Times, 
said that Biden told an audience last month, quote, we're not doing, we're not going to do a damn thing other than to protect Israel. Not a single thing. Unquote. Meanwhile, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has not spoken to Biden in three weeks. And Benjamin Netanyahu announced on Thursday that he rejects not just a two-state solution, but any state for the Palestinians. He's come out and said it openly, the same way Nikki Haley said, I'm a union buster. Benjamin Netanyahu said, no Palestinian state, no sovereignty for the Palestinian people. He's trying to shore up his far-right base in Israel because his days are numbered politically. During a press conference on Thursday, Netanyahu said that he will insist on complete security for Israel and that the West Bank will remain under his control with no Palestinian sovereignty. The BBC reports that recent polls show More Israelis want him to focus on bringing home the hostages and focus less on trying to wipe out Hamas, which more and more Israelis are starting to believe is impossible. The Pope, we love the Pope, said that sexual pleasure is a gift from God, but he wanted to avoid, but he warned we should avoid pornography. The Pope said sexual pleasure is a gift from God, but stay away from pornography. Then the Pope recommended an app that he uses with his son where they monitor each other's porn activity to make sure they don't end up looking at any. The Pope then said, oops, I shouldn't have said anything about Leonard. There I go again, me and my big Pope mouth. So I guess there's a son. I love the Pope. Should I wrap it up? Yeah. I'm David Feldman. It's the news. It's just... It's just so... It's just so, isn't it? I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. I have, uh, what is this? Oh, this is a picture of Mickey Mouse paying a male prostitute to burn cigarette holes into Mickey's nasty place. That's just, uh, that cannot be healthy. And, of course, autoerotic asphyxiation. Uh, That's what Mickey loves to do. He loves to uh, be put in a mousetrap rack by a dominatrix, and uh, it's sick. This is uh, actually true. I, I uh, this is actually I have a cat, and uh, she licks herself all day, and then coughs up not fur balls but fur coats. Look at that. She spends all morning cleaning herself, and then instead of fur balls. She coughs up fur coats. It's beautiful. 
Uh, I don't know who that guy is. The poll. We have a poll. Is anybody still here? Thank you to Bob in the chat room if you're still here. Let me check on my chat room. I have to figure out how to... How do I get there? This is so unprofessional. Where am I? Okay. There's a... There we go. Uh, hello, everybody. Here. here. Thank, Thank you, you to Bob, Bob in the chat room. Hi. Uh, kudos, bro. Be good to yourself. I'm just reading some of the chat. Cheesy. Papa, Popa, Pope dreaming on such a Mickey day. Pull a pull. Somebody's smoking weed. Uh, okay. Uh, so there's a poll. There we go. Let me. There are 1,125 votes. Thank you all for participating in this. Uh, 1,126 1, votes. Will Mike Johnson still be speaker in November? Yes or no? 24% of the live chat room think he will still be speaker in November. And 76% out of 1,131 votes, 76% say he will not be speaker in November. I don't... uh, I, I don't think he will be here, I, I, so everybody agrees with me. Thank you to Bob for monitoring the, the chat room and keeping it civilized. I think that covers everything. I'm David Feldman. I'm not going to do a show tomorrow night. I'm going to uh, do a show Saturday night. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, so... I hope to see everybody Saturday. Thank you so much for sticking with me. I'll see you Saturday.